The Beautiful Toilet, episode four. This is really exciting. I have with me American drag queen in Japan, fashion icon, Zach Langley Chi-Chi. And hey, I'm baby. extremely grateful to Zach for appearing on my my humble startup podcast. So. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, I try to follow Josh's ethos, which is that if someone has an interesting idea for a podcast, like I'll go on because... Uh, it's a good karmic wheel, and I don't know, like, what do I have to lose? You're, I'm excited to talk to you, so thanks for having me on. I think that there's something, uh, there's like a real solidarity with this uh, this orbit of podcasts. There's like a kind of family, like, cluster, uh, you know, a network, and it, all of them are like one or two degrees removed from each other, and I feel like everyone supports each other because it is like an underground uh, DIY project, and there's just a sense of solidarity that comes with that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I feel as if podcasting is the last place where any transgression is possible at all. Obviously, like cinema and literature have been so brutalized by the contemporary moment that you can't really express yourself in a daring or challenging way anymore. But podcasting, because it's like so unmoderated and uh, like these long form conversations, I feel like it's the last vestige of where people can be sort of evil together and anyone who's like not doing the garbage like NPR here so I'm gonna talk about today and wow these topics you know if it's not doing that then you're just kind of uh, earnestly putting your heart in the table we all kind of have to band together so it is like this funny little corner of the internet and I'm excited to see like in 10 years like how people will remember it. 
I think part of the appeal as well is that there's like a very high opportunity cost to digging up dirt on people through their podcast and that you really just have to like slog through hours of stuff. And if you're not like genuinely interested in it, then you're probably not going to like, you know, whatever, like all the most like red pilled content is probably like just sandwiched in there somewhere in the middle and requires extensive digging. And then by the time that you've uh, made it all the way through, you're probably radicalized. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the ideas are so irresistible and charming that anyone who uh, goes through the agony of, you know, several hours of listening to someone's show that they don't like, they usually end up liking them by the end, even if they say they don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, anyone that enters into the Zach Langley Chi Chi universe, it's like an all encompassing vortex that just kind of draws you in. And, you know, whether or not you consent, you will be bimbified by it. So cute. I love that. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm sure you're, uh, you've explained this too many times to count and, uh, I, I probably will try to steer away from the big picture of what you do, but just for the audience's sake, uh, how would you describe your, uh, line of work, your lifestyle, et cetera, in a brief synopsis? Well, no, it's, it's a great question, Scott, if you put on the table, but yeah, I'm a drag queen in Japan. I mostly do hostessing. I used to do a lot more kind of run-of-the-mill lip-sync gigs, but uh, with COVID, I kind of just was doing hostessing for a long time, and I uh, sort of do a kind of drag that's not really what you might see if you go to a gay bar in America right now, which is, you know, everyone has the sort of static, monotonous clown makeup that they do, and I do not do that. I barely block, I like, don't like block my eyebrows. I put on like the most scant amount of makeup and uh, I kind of like feel more like a cross dresser than a drag queen, even though I probably slip between both. And yeah, I just uh, run around the country causing mayhem in the hearts of men in a wig. So yeah, that's about it. And I do my podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a point of commonality between us. Uh, not that I've ever been a cross dressing uh, performance artist and hostess, but um. My uh, my lousy college job was uh, working at a Japanese-style karaoke bar in New York. And oh, so, was it really? Yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, of course, I was just, like, bartending, like, barbacking, like, ordinary, run-of-the-mill stuff. I didn't, uh, I didn't have to uh, put on any outrageous costumes for that. But it was definitely a cultural experience. Uh, the place was owned by an older Korean man. But it was managed by Japanese people all the way down. He hired them because he said that they worked the hardest. And um, that was, uh, you know, I, I had a love-hate relationship with it. I felt like the uh, work culture, I don't know if, to what extent you get this in your industry, but like, you know, they'd say that Japanese people work extremely hard. Um, I find that they work incredibly taxing hours, but I would move three times as fast as anyone there. Um, <laughs> no yeah i mean it's the nightlife is a little different because most of the people who at least in mainland japan like the people who do nightlife are kind of um a little more on the outcast side of things like the people who usually end up in this field of business are sort of people who don't fit the typical like salary man mold or like business people so the kind of terrifying evil hours you have to do at that job it's not like quite the same but people do really pour their whole hearts into it and um 
her name is Lyra, who manages the and owns the bar I've done most of my hostessing at, is the hardest working drag queen I've ever met in my entire life because um, I don't know, like she sees that she has like a point of view and she has a, a vision for her bar and the experience that you get when you go and talk to the drag queens there. And I mean, it's really kicking off for her. Like she's getting a lot of TV attention lately and has been making the rounds on some like Japanese variety shows. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work and you have, I mean, doing like the 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. kind of thing is like not for the faint of heart, especially when you're drunk most of the time and like dealing with so many people who are wasted and just, it's a very emotional environment to be in, but I don't know. I love it. I, I think it's uh, it's thrilling work and you get to see like the motions of humanity very clearly. <laughs> for sure. And there was uh, a part of me that was probably, well, I was not officially drunk on the job. I was uh, officially 100% sober. Um, you right. know, accidents happen, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, yeah, I, mean... I, I, I was drawn in by it. And I really do miss it at times, even though it was uh, sweaty, uh, all manner of um, bodily fluids were, uh, I, I was in contact with at one point or another. Yeah. It was gross. Uh, but, you know, you're either with the, the grime lifestyle or you're not. So No, absolutely. Like, hostessing and Japanese, like, nightlife is really the most, like, Julia Kristeva kind of job you can get. It's just, like, full of abjection and, like, people failing to express themselves, like, barfing everywhere, like, bleeding and coming and, like, pissing. It's, like, <laughs> you really get, like, the full human experience working at a, <laughs> at a Japanese bar, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I've also heard from co-workers that actually visited Japan and had the same experience that the Japanese version of these karaoke bars, like, uh, without, like, without your role, basically, just like the ordinary, like, run-of-the-mill right, private right. room bar, they were more or less the same, except they were more high-octane. They had, like, much higher capacity, like, there would be 100 rooms in one establishment, whereas yeah, yeah. ours had, like, uh, 15, I think, and they were less scrupulous with keeping things clean um they would uh mm. more or less wet a washcloth and wipe it over the table rather than do a full clean of the rooms now perhaps that's, that's changed since right. then are you like actively going to work now or are you still in the th throes of the uh um i haven't been able to in a month or two i think i'll, I'll have a a few more shifts maybe in august but i'm actually relocating to tokyo next month so i'm gonna have to start from ground zero and kind of uh, rebuild my drag essence back up in a, a new city so that should be an exciting new step in the in the chichi monogatari but i have a i have no idea how it's gonna work out i, I know some girls who work up there and they've said they're gonna show me the ropes to the nichome which is like the gay uh, district circuit once i'm there so I don't know, we'll just go trial by fire and see what happens. I like made it work in Nagoya, so I, I, I'm i sure something will... Oh, we'll break a leg. That sounds uh, fantastic. <laughs> you told me uh, over DMs uh, some of your Anka recommendations. I found them very hard to look up, but I managed to find um, one of the Miwa songs that you recommended. Um, however, mm -hmm. I just wanted to talk briefly about uh, Anka and uh, any other like uh, Ryokyoku, uh, old Japanese music, because a big part of like the ethos of the beautiful toilet is rehabilitating and kind of uh, 
popularizing these uh, very aesthetic, like older genres of Oriental music from like the 30s through the 60s. Um, part of that, uh, part of the uh, inclusion of that in my branding is that it's, uh, I imagine that the copyrights are much less scrupulously maintained for uh, like grandma foreign music, but um, <laughs> but I, I sincerely have like a passion for like Shidaichu and uh, like old Iranian stuff. And so I wanted to work that into oh, the awesome. podcast. But um, Anka for me has always been a little bit challenging. I find that I like it as like ambient music and like a really like sweaty, like uncomfortable situation. I think it just mm. adds to the tension in a really pleasing way, but I find it uh, less satisfying to listen to attentively than something like Shidaichu or Ryokyoku. Um, I don't know, is it, do you think that the lyrics carry a lot of the weight or, cause I don't speak Japanese at all. Right. No, I think they certainly do. And one of my favorite things about Enka is that it's it's very accessible for like the common man. And there's like a really dusty karaoke bar that's like a, about a three minute walk away from my house and never seen anyone younger than 60 in there. And I met a couple who had never even left the city we're in, like age like 65. They haven't even been to like Nagoya. They've never left the city. And uh, all of the lyrics of these songs are like these very accessible and so precise like in their imagery that it becomes ultra generalist basically uh-huh so i i really like that part of the lyricism of inca music is that it has this quality where it might show you like a really specific moment of like a man turning his back to you as he like departs you know shinjuku Eki or something but mm-hmm. it has the sort of basic verbiage and the content is so general that even with that like extremely specific image it becomes like this huge universal feeling so there's like a kind of like a communal mourning and like processing of emotion in those songs and i I like the way that anchor music kind of just like hovers through the older population of japan as like their tool to emote basically Mm -hmm. that's uh actually very uh understandable to me because well i don't speak any east asian language my background educationally was in italian and farsi and old iranian music tends to be extremely lugubrious in much the same way and also to uh retain like that aspect of um like extremely detailed like uh impressionistic portraits of specific heartbreaks in with all sensory details, but that nonetheless contribute to a sense of universality. Um, yeah. It's not for everyone though. My mom, uh, you know, my grandfather loves that music. He's Iranian. Uh, my mom uh, told me that every one of her nightmares begins with a Persian singer. So <laughs> um, I love that. It is so lugubrious and it's like that, like type of music from the global South where they open their mouth to sing a note. And then like 30 minutes later they finish like, no, I like a lot of uh, of Arabic pop music as well, like especially from like early two thousands, like late nineties. Um, but I, I really have a only the most surface level education on it. But I, I really love Haifa Webe, who is completely unassociated with what we're talking about. But she has that quality of like these uh, really broad general emotions that are channeled through like specificism. So I oh, I know I, I just. No knowledge yeah. of Arabic pop music from this era, except uh, I know of, um, there's an Egyptian artist named Mohammed Ramadan. He's, uh, are you familiar? 
he's like contemporary like uh putting out music and so within the arab world the stereotype about egyptians is that they're incredibly corny it's like they like to gamble (laughs) they tell a lot of jokes they're all hilarious and they just like are like the biggest cornballs in the world and this guy um muhammad ramadan was put on the earth to vindicate everything about that stereotype he uh he has like novelty like incredibly catchy like novelty pop rap rap songs about the coronavirus about being a mafioso um i think you might i think you would appreciate him he's uh yeah i'm fascinated very like modern production values but like the, the whole uh the whole vibe with him is just like infectious. It really has like the charisma of an Arab Barents and um it sounds hot to me. Yeah, I'll check him out for sure. <laughs> I give it my highest endorsement. So cute. Yeah, I don't know. I just um any I, that's why I like pop music too. It's like anything that kind of um does like the cultural work of exercising people's unspoken feeling is always exciting to me. So that's also like why I like a few contemporary movies that I, I think might actually not be technically like good or like worthwhile. But like, I love 50 shades of gray for instance, because it is like this meat processor where all of these sort of like pent up rape fantasies that women might be having uh, explode like in blockbuster and it's like completely malfunctioning and unwieldy. So it's like, I love any sort of, um, art field that does that sort of work and Inca is like the best for it. I uh-huh. mean, it's, I love seeing Japanese men in their like fifties and sixties, like getting emotional as they like throw their whole heart into the Inca. I think it's a, uh, it's really beautiful. And American men and Western guys just don't have like that Avenue. It's so heartbreaking. Like when they're forlorn, it's like they sit in front of the TV with uh, what's that like, tv dinner it's like man up or something <laughs> what's uh, it called oh mighty guy <laughs> uh i feel uh, like there's like a family of microwavable meals that have similar names but i don't know exactly what you i mean. don't know either i have very limited i it's like i can see like the microwave dinner and it's the tray on the lap and it's the you know, whatever like 90s movie is on like, you know, TNT that night. So it's like, that's like the sad Western emotional man, but like the the Asian guys get to go and- Well, I find that like the saddest exemplar of that archetype is like the disgruntled, like disillusioned, um, beleaguered Gen Xer. No, that's really unfortunate. I swear like these Gen Xers, like in order to latch on to any sense of meaning, they will try to meme the same 20 songs from 1985 to 1995 into the same level of prominence as like their boomer forebears and like never really account for and never really grapple with the fact that they are just objectively less culturally relevant than their forebears. Yeah, Gen X is, is upsetting. Um, I also like um, the forlorn millennial men who just become spiritual women and like all look exactly the same, like all smell the same. They have like the same like black look in their eye, like little beads. And, you know, at least like those guys sitting in front of the TV with their man dinners or whatever, like there's kind of like a cowboy essence to that. Well, but, like, the, that without doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's debased, but it's they they maintain certain decorum in spite of it. I totally agree. No, I, I like, but I don't, I'm not exactly sure of the millennial archetype that you're pointing to. I feel like maybe I would know it if I saw it, but the way that you're describing it, like it's all a little bit vague to me. 
Okay, I can get a little more specific. It's like the feminist, like 30 somethings, right? And they all have like, you know, just a little facial hair. And they're all like very well polished. They like to wear like uh, a hoodie or sometimes a hat. And they play Nintendo games and uh, they have girlfriends who they're very afraid of. All right, I think I'm getting the picture now. But to be fair, I haven't been in America for three years, like literally not once. So like everything I imagine about it is sort of abstract to me now. I could literally just be inventing these people. And I think it's funny that anyone is like interested in my cultural commentary on America because it's all like a different like Twin Peaks dimension to me that I like, can't walk into. <laughs> well, you've transgressed into like a different level of outsiderness, um, which is always like uh, offers a better perspective in many respects. Absolutely. And you brought up like uh, Ezra Pound earlier and not to just, you know, uh, ejaculate this conversation into 7,000 no, different no, directions, no. but like his, his outsiderness also is what makes like everything he does like so interesting in the way that he found a way to be the wrong person in every location he was like through his whole career. (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt. He's uh, always like kind of like on the outside looking in. He's, uh, you know, he's an expat and like, not just like as a matter of like lifestyle, but really as like an ethos, I think. Um, No, totally. I think he would be published in expat press if he were around today. Uh, Shout out to my friends, Manuel. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, uh, I got my contos right here. I keep it by my bed. <laughs> oh, hey, would you look at that? Me too. Oh, cute. No, I, I just, um, I love luxuriating in this book. I have no idea what he's talking about 90% of the time, but, you know, you know I, when it cl- People always talk about clicks, Finnegan's you know? Wake as, like, this insurmountable, like, literary tome, like, the ultimate, mm-hmm. like, literary challenge or whatever. But this book, like, deadass just drops, like, Chinese characters, like, every single page as you get towards the end. And yeah, it makes me want to learn Mandarin, but moreover, it's just, like, I don't know. You can tell that it's serious, though. The earlier ones I've definitely unpacked a little bit, but... Oh, yeah. The earlier stuff is is much more digestible but i i find that it's like i don't think you have to like read it exactly as everyone's like oh you have to read the contest like with a companion you have to go through every page and no like honestly like if you read it more broadly and kind of just pass through it then every now and then like you feel the click when he's sort of summoning all of this great wave of humanity through like literature and old mythology and you can like feel all assaulting you in like one line from time to time and that's all i need um and i also love his use of chinese it's so funny to me because like he never like properly spoke mandarin like he could never like really read it but you know in his uh, charming orientalism he just like threw it in there and you know i think that's a wonderful way to translate is just to read something not really know what it's actually saying, like have like the most skeletal understanding of it and then use it as a vessel to put your own heart through. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I totally agree. And I think that the way that he drops these Chinese characters, like non sequiturs amidst like paragraphs of esoteric English uh, references to this, that, and the other is, um, Something that I aspire to, even though I too do not know Mandarin. I guess that's the accessibility of the Astro Pound lifestyle too, even though it requires a lot of reading. He nonetheless, um, you know, he gives hope to those of us that are somewhat hopeless about ever learning an Oriental language. Um, well, when did yeah. you start studying Japanese? 
Well, I actually am, I am uh, deceptively not as good at Japanese as everyone imagines. I'm just very good at speaking. I'm very good at speaking and I can understand a lot, but I only took it for a year in high school, or sorry, in college. Like it was oh, my okay. last year when I knew I was going to try to get out of the country and go to Japan. I was like, okay, let's go somewhere after we finish because I was too poor in college to study abroad. So wanted to go somewhere, learn a new language. And I was like, all right, let's just go for Japanese. And I, the year taught me like, 20 kanji at most like maybe 50 i learned like hiragana and katakana obviously and then i learned like the fundamental grammar i could talk about my day loosely but when i got here i was like not a functioning japanese speaker by any stretch of the imagination and that didn't that didn't change until i started having a lot of um abject anonymous sex with Japanese guys and <laughs> then like having to live like a, a second life outside of work with um you know my sexuality that kind of started pushing me more deeper and then by the time I had a boyfriend you know I'm like speaking Japanese with him all the time and uh I, I have been getting better so I guess it's been you, about uh, a total of four years yeah have you read like uh Mishima in the original Japanese or not possible oh, okay. yet. I, I, I absolutely, I, I, uh, esoteric, like archaic kanjis. And so that he's very challenging. Even for My me. boyfriend can't read him without a dictionary. So, I mean, my boyfriend's also like retarded and like can barely like read Japanese and they like, sometimes doesn't know words that I say, which I'm not trying to like make myself sound like, Oh, I'm so good. But like, no, no, you're just <laughs> trying to describe your boyfriend as a himbo. Yeah. Which is funny. Cause he's like 42. He's like, like the anti himbo. Honestly, he's like this, like, uh, <laughs> prissy skinny gay who like loves vivian westwood <laughs> we have like kind of like a uh like i don't know like a marquis de sod kind of uh sadistic relations not like sexually but just the, the dynamics of it anyway um yeah mishima is so beyond my skill level right now i read um i forgot the title of the story it's uh it's like yonju manen or something it's the one about uh the really charming moral couple who have sex in front of uh, voyeurs for money and it's about like the decay of japan i read that it took me about three weeks with a dictionary and it's like a 20 page story so um i imagine i'll be able to read mishima in about 10 years <laughs> <laughs> um but you've what have you read in translation then the better question is what haven't i read because i think it's only three books that i haven't read now oh, wow. I, I haven't read life for sale I still haven't read Sailor Who Fell from Grace from the Sea. That's my favorite of like the short novels. Right. I, so I got to read that one. I, I've been kind of saving it because I know I'm going to like it. And then there's one more, Frolic of the Beasts. I haven't read that either. So. Oh, yeah. I haven't touched that. But um, I only asked because when you were talking about like the couple that has sex in front of voyeurs for the decay of Japan, um, mm. I... I always struggle to grasp with what the hell is happening in the later two books of the Sea of Fertility tetralogy. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it definitely like comes to like a very satisfying conclusion. Uh, I guess we're entering spoiler territory here, but um, but really, like I um, sometimes I feel like Mishima's exact point like eludes me until I read like more of his work and try to get like a more holistic picture of what he's going for. Um, when I first read uh, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion, I didn't know how to make heads or tails of it. And in context of like his greater bibliography, I think it makes a lot more sense. But I still yeah. don't know what to do with this 10-year-old Thai princess that Honda just really wants to see urinate. Um, 
and I don't know what to do with uh, the like pervy Honda arc in the last book in the tetralogy. Okay, so I actually just went on a different show to talk about Sea of Fertility, uh, Cuteness Unit. It's a really great podcast. I, I highly recommend about. Um, like oh, you're anime. so generous. No, I I love. I literally will go onto any fucking show and to, to talk about Mishima. Like, I had I spent like five years like voraciously reading him and not having anyone to talk to about it in college and so like now that like Mishima is kind of like in and cool I'm like okay great like I will talk about Mishima and I have like a lot of um bitterness towards uh people who read him and just do it for the politics or like you know sort of like the groper style Mishima reading like pisses me off because for me it's just an exercise in grappling with the enormous horror that is beauty you know like Mm -hmm. beauty is one of the most difficult things for any human being to have to live with and understand and navigate through and I mean you're beautiful so you probably don't have to deal with it as much as I do but (laughs) (laughs) like for, for those of us not as blessed you know I had to put on like 50 pounds of makeup to be gorgeous in the way i want to be you know but um for those not as blessed as you you know we have to uh, i disavow i totally uh you <laughs> just the way you are but nonetheless Thank you. That, um, <laughs> the i mean i'm probably a little bit more open to like the standard like groiper reading of mishima i think that the power of him is that he resolves the dialectic between being like a flaming fag and being like I mean, there definitely is an aspect of irony to his, like, nationalist, like, bodybuilding military. Oh, without a doubt. It's mostly a joke. I I feel like there is, like, a sincere current behind it, though. I think that there is, like, a well-founded philosophy. Have you read uh, uh, Marguerite Yorsenar's um, essay about him? I have not. Um, The only... I read a biography of him, and then I read Henry Miller's... uh, on the death of Mishima, but that's about all I, I've read post-textually. This is, um, this is really cool. I picked this up from a thrift store, but um, I found out, like, Yorsenar herself is, like, a very respected writer. Um, she's, like, a novelist, essayist, uh, kind of like a Gertrude Stein-style-based lesbian. But um, cool. she, uh, I think she had, I, I basically agree with her reading of Mishima which is that like his his fascism it's not like totally like a campy bit although that's like a part of it but it's like altogether like a kind of like cohesive um resolution of the dialectic between oh yeah i mean dualism. i think it, it's not just a, a campy bit but i think it, it's more like it's like a resolution of the contradictions that he was permanently existing with and in his uh, debate with the, uh, oh God, I keep forgetting what fucking university is. I think it's Tokyo University that he did his uh, big debate at. And it was during the Zengakuren, like communist student movement, mm-hmm. when they had tens of thousands, like these massive um, organized protests in Tokyo that were like toppling the city over. People were getting like killed and stomped out and like crowd crushed to death at, at these uh, communist uprisings, basically. And when Mishima went and had his debate with the students, he said that he completely respects what they do and that he actually believes that him and the communists are are doing the same thing, which is sort of like an artistic suicide. And I think that Mishima would have went on to claim almost any political movement to give his narrative that last kind of, you know, dialectic touch that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And as much as I would have loved for him to have gone through the 
the communist route because the way that the Japanese leftism movement like sputtered into flames was so theatrical. Uh-huh. Um, I would have loved to have seen his take on, on doing that. But regardless, um, I, I think he kind of just saw any political grandiosity and his charisma was able to get all of those disenfranchised young men into his twink army. I mean, it, it is beautiful theater. And uh, I think he does believe to a degree that there is an innate tragedy in the human emperor. And I like the way he deals with it more than Kawabata or Oe or like almost any other writer because they all get like mournful and, you know, very, mm-hmm. oh, but he yeah, gets and turned I, I know on. That, uh, you know? Your, uh, your disillusionment with Kawabata from your other work and um, <laughs> I very much share the sentiment. I only read one of his novels I think it was called Spring Snow in English. Oh, um, you're talking oh, about a snow country. Oh, a snow yeah, country. Spring yeah. Snow is the fertility yeah, novel. novel. About. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. That book is boring. Embarrassing. It, it, snow country is boring. boring. Yeah. No, you, you called it like a limp dick novel in the worst way, right? Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just the, the pits. And uh, then he wrote that atrocious novel about Go, which I, <laughs> I just... I love, like, Eagle. I think it's the coolest board game. I think it's, like, so existential and, like, creepy in the way that it's, like, ab- so abstract, but two forces, like, pushing against each other and, like, trying to... It- it's, like, war and violence, like, in a board game so, um, I don't know, like, so streamlined that it feels very intense to play. So when he wrote a novel about, like, a young, like, hotshot go superstar and like the old fading like master of it like in their game and it wasn't like hot or like psychologically interesting at all and it was just like chinese people suck it go japanese people are the only ones who get it i was like oh my god fuck you like don't turn like this sport of the heart into politics you fucking boring ugly man also he kawabata didn't even kill himself in an interesting way like nishima turned his suicide into art like Sylvia Plath, I would say, also had a thrilling, fascinating suicide. Virginia Woolf, too. Kawabata was a so, flop, boring. Who cares? Wait, what, did, what was his method exactly? Gassed himself. Oh, yeah. Yawn. Pussy. Where's the sword? That's like... <laughs> that's like... Because uh, Mishima talks a lot about how disgraceful it is for, like, a man to kill himself in a way, like, by taking poison. Because, you know, that's how the ladies kill themselves. You know, you wouldn't want to. Yeah, that's how um, the terrible fake reincarnation at the end of Um, uh, the angel tries to kill himself with poison. So, yeah. Um, To go back to what you were saying about um, thinking about the Thai princess and uh, Honda's like sudden voyeurism, um, this is like why I love the Sea of Fertility so much because graper readers will sometimes try to be like, this is the complete refute of Mishima's homosexuality and him manifesting the strong masculine ego as the only answer. This is him transversing from faggot to man. I'm like, no. Like, the whole point of, of Honda's um, voyeurism that he goes into such a fascinating, horrific spiral in, in Temple of Dawn and then kind of um, reaches the end point in, in Decay of the Angel is that actually the voyeurism is a lovely model of living and reframing your existence, not as an actor, but as a sort of enormous eye to 
witness everything that humanity has to offer and experience it in full is like the the only other path if you're not going to be like summoned into the righteous path of uh, beautiful self-actualization through death. I think that's the most lucid, uh, like straightforward explanation I've heard of that. Thank you. Thank God. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I just finished, um, I was reading one book a year of Sea of Fertility. I started it my senior year of college with Spring Snow, and then I've read one every year, and I just finished it, and it was, um, it was heartbreaking to finish the, the series. So I, I, I have a lot of thoughts. During the initial COVID lockdown, when I was collecting unemployment, I uh, mm -hmm. did one a month. That was my ambition. Um, so that's great. that's great. I started with Spring Snow in like April, I think. Then mm -hmm. uh, Runaway Horses in May, etc. I think I finished late. I think I finished in like August. But What was your favorite of the four? Uh, probably the first one. Yeah, it used to be my favorite novel of all time, but um, as time has gone on, I I actually think I like Temple of Dawn the best in the series, and then my favorite Mishima novel is Forbidden Colors, which is not, not talked about enough. Hmm, I have not read it enough to have any opinion. Well, it it's uh it's quite like um some parts of Sea of Fertility and how it like deals with um beauty is evil. Um, but it's also like his most outwardly ho uh, homosexual novel, like Confessions of a Mask is like the closet novel. And then Forbidden Colors is like the out at the bar novel. And it is, uh, I think it like terrified me reading it. Actually, I have that like, sensation with Mishima a lot where the, I will be physically emotive about it. I cried like three times reading Decay of the Angel. And I like for some, it was one of them was just when, um, the evil fake reincarnation child was like being cruel to his uh, fiance. And it just horrified me so much. I cried a little bit and then I did at the end as well. Um, but I just, I, I'm so physically impacted by him. I can never get over it. I definitely, uh, in, in, even though it wasn't my favorite in the series, like Runaway Horses gave me chills uh, in his portrayal of reincarnation and just like the, mm. um, you know, the one thing I think the Paul Schrader movie gets really right about his work is just how much it like crescendos into like these beautiful moments yeah. of like, revelation and epiphany and just like intense ex intensity of experience. Um, and that was, um, I, you know, that comes in like these fleeting moments throughout the tetralogy and throughout all of his writing. And uh, yeah, I think that's what speaks the crescendos. Yeah, absolutely. And the Paul Schrader biopic is the best biopic ever made because it, it gets that so right. Everyone and, loves that movie. It's oh, it's great. amazing. Like, the Philip Glass score, I mean, it's so amazing that it's become pastiche now, but I can still get chills just listening to it on its own. And that final sequence when you see each of the, I think I wrote in my stupid little letterbox review, I was like, climax! <laughs> it's like when I said, like, it all is all about that big orgasm at the end of the movie. It's It's just incredible. Yeah, I think um, that uh, aspect of like resolving the dialectic, I think there are really like two personas and they're not really mutually exclusive or like contradictory strictly um, within Mishima. Like, because like the idea of being like the unironic, like ultra nationalist, ultra masculine warrior archetype is inherently camp. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, like 300 tries to play it straight, you know, and 
nonetheless, it's still like incredibly campy because that's just like uh, really like corny like place to operate from. And right, well, playing it straight is what makes it camp, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas yeah, I guess I mean, like it, uh, it's like Oscar it. Wilde said, it's like things that are serious ought to be taken frivolously, and things that are frivolous ought to be taken seriously. But that's the thing. I mean, I, I find it very endearing when I, I listen to straight guys on podcasts, not you included. You seem to have a great understanding of it, but <laughs> lots of uh, heterosexual men are like, I just don't get camp. I'm like, yeah, I, you're not, you don't get camp. And it's like not something to be like realized through scholarship. It's a feeling, you know, and it's like the feeling of uh, seeing something fail in a way that is so beautiful that it accidentally becomes like a perfect emblem of a human emotion. And uh, of course, like right-wing nationalism is doing that because it's trying to morph the glory of, um, individualism and being alive into politics. And whenever you try to do that, it blows up in your face, which is why, um, yeah, I, I find like right-wing guys to be ex- just amazingly, like delightfully camp. And then also really is there, like, hot. Any, because uh, like so widespread like interest in the gay community for like wignet guys? I think, okay, I think honestly, I'm going to kind of self-aggrandize here, but I think that I am kicking that off a little bit. <laughs> like, I I don't know my show I, I mean it was like pretty like Libby when I started it like I was you know I was like vaguely red pilled when I started um I guess I was you know I still consider myself like a leftist adjacent sort of person like I, I do like communist theory um but nonetheless I don't have like any time or patience for id politics so i think me just like not being like cruel to you know quote nazis unquote or like to you know right-wing people has kind of made my show like more accessible or like friendly to them i guess and so there's lots of uh, people who are pretty politically distant from my own point of view but lots of them are very hot and i will always be nice to hot people and i believe now that once gay people start realizing that if they're just nice to people they don't agree with and they just like don't get into it about things that don't matter like politics then um the world is your oyster the uh the ethos of the beautiful toilet is really just like an infinite ever-expanding platform for everyone and anyone um yeah jack from so, like that's actually like wonderful politically thing what's that oh you, you go ahead go ahead well, I was just saying that's like, strictly speaking, that's like politically neutral. Like there's no real, like, um, however, like in a very contingent, like cultural sense, I guess that puts you like in the broad, like cultural right wing, just by even being willing right, to right. engage with these ideas. But I'm also like, not like super political. I don't vote or I don't do anything gay like that in a pejorative sense. No. No, absolutely. I, I mean, voting is very gay. It's <laughs> no way around it. I find uh, Jack has a, a great ethos about this, which is that if you don't like what someone's saying and you think it's terrible, then you should absolutely encourage them and like, give them a platform and let them speak because they'll end up humiliating themselves without you having to do anything. So if you really don't like someone's point of view, you should especially go to special lengths to let them talk, you know? Because mm-hmm. usually they'll just collapse in on themselves. But mm-hmm. yeah, um... And honestly, like, what I find is, like, the whole, like, uh, frog Twitter, like, post-frog Twitter renaissance, whatever, like, Mm. 
that community is literally like what the rainbow flag represents in some sense in that it literally, literally it's just like this free form like kind of like exploratory experimental like force of like radical openness to experience that is uh so rare and um underappreciated and that you cannot get from like the actual like like rainbow people you know oh yeah well i mean any like of the actual like communal ecstasy that gay people had like i would say like in the 60s and 70s has been so desecrated by i don't know like liberal appeal like i yearn and have like a really heartbreaking desire for like 70s gay culture where everyone just like hated each other and was like constantly fucking and there was no such thing as like a gay man or a transgender woman it was just like everyone was faggots and it's like there was so much more room to express yourself so everyone kind of like had like this uh mutually agreed upon sort of like floating faggoty essence to them but now it's like here's 9 billion different ways to describe like the exact mechanisms of how your identity functions. And it, it's such a travesty. I can't. Yeah. I think it. I'm also someone that yearns for the cultural norms of the seventies and like a more broad sense, you know, everyone kind yeah. of has like one era that they affix themselves to, even if you have like a bit more based, like uh Heideggerian, like dialectic that recognizes the like uh, kind of like dialectical, progression of history but mm. everyone still sentimentally has like one era that they affix to and i honestly think that i am at core like a very like 1970s style reactionary so nice yeah i would i would count myself somewhere i take a little piece of each decade and do something else with it like the 80s has a lot of uh my desire for maximalism like the 70s has the experimental approach to love and community that i love and then the 60s has um the toiling communist uprisings that fall and explode on their face which is just so delightful to me there's like a i don't know what it is beauty but... to it there really is yeah no yeah i was talking about this on contain with barrett and we were you know talking about how much we like love like the esoteric like imagery behind like the really archaic kanji that like people put on their hats to designate like exactly like small circles of like what part of the movement they were in as they like were doing i don't know i just i love humans going out of their way to like explode their heart in front of everyone and like that's what good communist action was secretly about was not like um resolution of contradictions through a marxist lens but actually was about people like doing the midsummer finale scene where they're all in front of the burning temple and screaming Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I feel like I'm that. starting I to get like some cohesion in your worldview then, uh, because this is like the common thread that unites like communist action with Enka music and uh, all this other these cultural expressions that you like is like the catharsis and um, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You got it to a T. Great. Uh, why don't we uh, declare a brief intermission while I go refill my drink with ice? That's perfect. I want a cigarette so bad. So I'll be back in a few minutes. Okay, sure. See you soon. Okay, see you in a sec.
一つお返しできない私をお許しになってでも私はあなたの胸の中できっとあなたをお守りしていますいつまでもいつまでも Okay, uh, give me one second. I'm going to put some incense on the burner. Love it. I showcased this on the very first episode of The Beautiful Toilet, but I thought you would appreciate it. 
This is uh, my black woman. Black women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I found this from uh, one of like the gypsies on 14th Street. They uh, they sold me this black woman incense, and I had to like smell all of them and really act like I was attentively studying all of them so that I could just buy the But you were just going to buy it no matter what. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course, for the meme. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm obsessed. Yeah, I'm excited to actually go back and listen to the, the show now. I feel I feel bad when I haven't listened to the stuff I, I invited on, but I've been doing uh, my Perfume Nationals binging, and I'm almost caught up, and then I'll have time to go through uh, all the shows I want to listen to in detail so i'll uh first i do cuteness unit and then you'll be next and then oh, thank you so I know much it'll be after that i'm still trying to get the rhythm of it you know i think oh yeah it takes like um like honestly it takes like 20 or 30 episodes before you have like the rhythm where it kind of just like happens without having to you know think about it so much and then it becomes very natural i find i had an ep- i had a podcast with my friend cosmo from college um like last fall it was called We Disagree. Um, it was his idea. He basically conceived of it. And I think we definitely had competing visions in terms of like, well, I didn't really have much of a vision because it wasn't my project, but the podcasts mm. that I like are like these like weird, like red-pilled, like queer art podcasts, like Girls Chat and the Perfume Nationalist, stuff like that, uh, stuff like yeah. your show. Whereas like he's like, um, I, I feel like his vision was a little bit more npr um, right, and you know, we, did, we did good work in spite of it. There are some episodes that stand out, um, but nonetheless, like I think it just was uh, doomed to fail, and so that's why I created this project. Because really, I saw like I I came to think that I was better at talking than I am at writing, and I've always kind of like uh, branded myself as like an aspiring writer. Um, mm-hmm. So this was meant to be my creative outlet. Um, Anyway, I've got this black black woman incense burning right now. Um, Gorgeous. I wish I had something like, I had like a fun set piece, but um, in the throes of my move, I have like nothing, like I have no delightful fragrances or little props to have about my house, but I do have my, um, I left a little shrine of Evangelion stuff from when I was doing another guest appearance and was showing off some things I have. Have you seen, well, you haven't, we talked about this. You've only seen like half of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was like I watched the first half and I know it's good, but it also kind of feels like a chore to watch it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just like, maybe I just don't connect to it. Maybe I'm not like anxious or depressed enough. Um, I will say that it's um, honestly like the, the real emotionality of it is all in the, the back half, of course, which is like why the slog of the first half is rewarding because it kind of gets you like beat into the rhythm of it and then it um, upsets you with the truth at, towards the end. But in any case, yeah. Um, I, I'm not really like an anime person, believe it or not. Like I was in high school for like two or three years and I've seen a lot, but it's like it most of it doesn't really click for me and I can't like watch it or like defended yeah i kind of wish i liked anime more than i do is the thing like whenever i see people with like their like token extremist ideology like posting with like an anime girl from that ideology on twitter and they're like oh i'm like the nazbol anime girl like i'm the catholic integralist anime girl i feel like i love the trollish energy of it i find it like so chooky in a good way like it's just like Mm -hmm. cute and fun and i wish that i was that much of a troll but at the end of the day i like all like the the fortune like fallout anime people a lot as well actually because it is just aggressive to have to 
interact with the the anime icons and what have you. It is a, it is like a an art experience in itself to have to do like, deal I with the like anime. The unapologetic, just like yeah, I'm going to brand myself so that you know that I have nothing worthwhile saying, and that is where the power <laughs> comes from. Like it's just like such yeah. a meme at this point, and I think it's really powerful, actually. Um, yeah, I used to have an anime avi for like a year um, when I was like still doing uh, J-pop Twitter mostly, and I had like a busty picture of Asuka for a while. But oh, really? and I, I, I miss it sometimes. But you know, I'm I very attached to having my face, my like profile now. Like anime waifu, though. Um, from the first half of Evangelion, I definitely like felt an affinity for Misato. Um, yeah, I knew you were gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone says. That's because all the. The straight guys, if you ask them, like, oh, which one, who's best girl? Nine out of ten times it's going to be, like, it's Misato. I'm like, okay, that's missing the point of the question. You have to pick Asuka or Rei. But straight guys love Misato because she's kind of, like, the ultimate um, mommy trope. Like, she's, like, the ultimate hot mommy, you know, because she babies you and has beer in a dirty apartment. And she, you know, she's your mom. Yeah, I guess, like, like, in some sense, like, and this makes me like her less, but, like, she's, like, the archetype of, like, the cool girl in the sense of, like, oh, she's a girl, but she likes, like, beer and video games with the guys, and I'm, like, not attracted to that at all. Um, Right. But, I don't know, she has purple hair, purple is my favorite color. Um, Nice. That's great. The the big um, gag of it is, of course, like you get like, oh, she's like mommy for like the, the first half. And then in the back, you're like, oh, she's a sex addict and she literally cannot like solve any problems unless she is conflating sex with it in some way. So uh, love her uh, for that. I mostly not, align with Oscar. That's like an entire, but... like, to unpack that, I really would enter territory that I would not want to discuss <laughs> on a podcast as a favor to my future wife. So good for you but anyway we're officially back now from our intermission um <laughs> hey <laughs> uh I, yes i'm burning my black woman incense again i feel like that's going to be one of the archetypes of the podcast is this black woman incense as long as it lasts me um and i'm drinking a sangria that i made earlier today uh honestly i gotta hand it to myself i knocked it out of the park this is phenomenal that's great. I had coffee. I had um, coffee all day, and then I finished that. And they had like a an interesting thing at the convenience store that I haven't seen before. It's craft cola, and it tasted like shit. But I drank all of it. Yeah, I love um, soda. While we're setting the ambiance, I should tell you my last AC unit in my apartment. We had three in the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I share a three room apartment with a roommate. Um, and between the two of us, we had one working AC left. Oh, um, nice. Really. They, two of them broke down. And that was the one that was in my bedroom, fortunately. And I'm sorry to say that it has passed on to its final reward today. Oh, no. Wait, and, where are you located again? Are you on the uh, New York City. Coast? I'm in the oh, East Coast. Okay, I thought so. Yeah. So, so uh, it's hot. Yeah, you might say that. It's hot, it's humid. There are a lot of adjectives that come to mind. But it is, uh, I don't know, it's like pretty jarring now. I'm like not totally accustomed to the reality that I've just walked into. Um, Mm -hmm. And the weird part is, so I cleaned out the filter earlier today. Um, That's supposed to make it perform better, right? I found like an astonishing amount of dust in my filter. 
it really yeah, is yeah. like, you know, you leave a man to live alone as a bachelor and then he like just his air conditioning unit just has like this disgusting buildup of like gray dust. Um, I know mine's disturbing and I'm never going to open it and now I'm leaving. So I really am never going to know what's inside there. And I'm at peace with that. Well, thanks to the uh, intervention of a benevolent woman, I now realize how um, gross my air conditioning is, how congested it is liable to make a woman. And I endeavored, therefore, earlier today to clean it out. And now it's it's supposed to make the AC work better. It's not supposed to destroy it outright. And yet it has. So... Well, you know, now you get to live in, uh, I don't know, this is a great Japanese movie called Crazed Fruit. And, uh, okay, the whole I, movie. I know there's a movie by that title. I haven't seen it, but it looks very sexy. I highly recommend it. The, um, the screenwriter was one of Mishima's uh, little friends, and he was also like a sort of a conservative reactionary writer who uh, did a lot of, um, oh my God, look at these youth out of control, like novels and films. And uh, this one is especially sexy. And like the whole movie is so humid. Everyone is like constantly sweating. And it's like all of these like hot, like 21 year old, like Japanese, like bachelors, like being vicious to women and other men, like while they're like constantly like wiping sweat off their faces. So I think um, being too hot and like having a red face and like constantly melting is like a very great artistic space to be in. I know I appreciate it too, especially since like I'm like a I'm probably more of a China weeb at this stage than like uh, an actual proper weeb, and I feel like there's something that, and I always gravitate towards like Southern China for its sentimentality, mm-hmm. for like just like the openness of expression. I guess we're kind of on the same w- wavelength in that respect, and that like I love like uh, in addition to like 30s and 40s Shidaichu music, I love like. 80s and 90s Cantonese music um, oh, cool. for very different reasons. I find that like the Shidaichu stuff, like it's very um, dignified. It, it can set an ambiance, but it also rewards close listening. And it's just like breathtakingly beautiful. Whereas like the 80s and 90s, it's just like so vulgar in some sense. It's like really like talking mm. at your heartstrings in the most sentimental way. Um, yeah. But like the the greats, like uh, Hawkin Lee and Francis Yip, are also very much a part of like the vision of the beautiful toilet. So now I have a I have a deep love for Chinese people, but I have a really lackluster education in uh, pop culture and art from China. Really, um, I uh, I had a, a clique of Chinese friends in college who I was like constantly riveted by, who had like really like evil fathers who like worked with yakuza and like did really terrible political work and i was obsessed with their personal dramas all the time and their fluency in english but like their stubborn refusal to ever like communicate with us i had a a girlfriend early in college um she was like half japanese like half like hood black from harlem and mm-hmm. uh, she grew up in New York, but she has like the, these extended family, like Yakuza relatives. And she was yeah. like bragging to me once about how she could just like order a hit on anyone, uh, you know, on a whim. And she would just like tell her cousins, like this person dishonored me and they would like load up their guns and, you know, in point blank in cold blood, just walk away without a trace. 
you know, all the sexiest women in the world and in art are ones who can assemble a, a small horde of men to assassinate others on a whim. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I I find Nicole Kidman in Dogville to be really hot because uh, as soon as like her like mafia daddy comes back, she just is like kill them all. I love uh, I love women in any uh, role that can just instantly slaughter leagues of people. That's why I, I really want like um. I would love, like, if we had, like, in North Korea or, like, some other, like, malfunctioning state, if we could just, like, get, like, one, like, cunty bitch, like, to be, like, in a pantsuit just slaughtering people. And that's why I'll always be disappointed Hillary Clinton didn't win because I love the idea of her massacring people from the White House in her, like, red little pantsuits. So hot. What do you mean that North Korea is malfunctioning? Um, I mean, I'm being a little hyperbolic. I actually think North Korea is very functioning. I just mean like in a sort of um, cultural sense, perhaps. It seems to me that a lot of the aesthetic values of it are stuck um, in in a really compelling way. Like, it's like everything is kind of like an echo of like 80s American culture. So I like how they are you know, purportedly one of the most modern countries in the world and have um, all these fantastic initiatives. But um, all of their, like, images of luxury are, like, hilariously outdated to the Western eye. So I guess I mean it that way. I um I was, like, really going to try to, like, play it straight and be the Western North Korea simp for a minute, but I just can't do it. I mean, I'm sure I mean, if you are, I, I'm here for that, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, the things that the CIA tells us about it are obviously absurd. They're like, oh, oh they yeah, believe yeah. that their leader doesn't poop, and, like, <laughs> they have, like, all these r- ridiculous beliefs that we're supposed to just take at face value. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like you have to believe that, like, Korean people are NPCs to really, like, swallow wholesale what the CIA is feeding you. Uh, oh, yeah. I, f- I think it's probably a stretch to call it the ideal society, but nonetheless, I really appreciate it as like a meme opinion to just be like the right wing guy that also believes that the People's Republic yeah, of yeah. North Korea is the only true Korea and is also a, like perfect utopia, ethno state, communist wonderland. I'm absolutely obsessed with like any like really brash political opinion like that. Um, and I especially love like, um, okay, let me preface this so I don't get in any trouble. I don't agree with this. I just think it's like funny in an artistic sense. But I like, um, I really like people who still believe like Manchuoku, like the Japanese puppet state that they had in China. And I'm literally obsessed, like just so riveted by like Manchuoku, like nationals who like have like, you can buy a Manchuoku like passport and they have like a flag and like people have like, Really, like, Wait, how much does it cost for a Manchukuo uh, passport? It's like 30 bucks. Wait, oh my gosh. Why didn't you tell me? I that? want one, but I don't. Because it's like, <laughs> if you get one, you're going to go on a list, you know? It's like, okay, yeah. this person is a a terrorist. But it's like, I really want one. And I highly encourage you to look at like the, the embassy websites that they have because uh, they are fascinatingly like... I don't know, the website design is like scrolling text in like three languages at the bottom with like word art, um, like descriptions of the passport and like the really ugly yellow flag. Um, I don't, I love that stuff. And that's, I also like love like North Korea apologism for the same reason. I mean, I technically have ambitions to work in international relations. Like I would like to be in the foreign service. That's what I say. Um, okay. 
which I am actively annihilating with my alt-right podcast, but... <laughs> Is this what counts as alt-right now? I can't even believe this. I say, like, no, I say that with like, extreme <laughs> flippancy. I, I say that as, like, a sure. terrible meme, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, I say the same thing about, like, oh, my podcast is, like, post-left or, like, dirtbag left, and I like, don't believe in any of that at all. But it's, like, honestly, people would probably qualify this as alt-right, and, like, here I am, like, talking about, like, God, no. Like, I'm a cross-dresser. It's, like, <laughs> how alt-right can I get? Like, I don't get it. You are stupid. Yes, this is my alt-right queer art podcast. Art, queer art podcast. Which is also, like, <laughs> yeah. non-supremacist. And yeah, like the dissident <laughs> right is a. It, it's just like this gay art collective. It's so like wow, it literally is what the rainbow represents. Um, Truly. Otherwise, if I did not have a nominal aspiration to work in the foreign service, I would absolutely like go out and get a menchukuo. Um, God, I I want one. Like, what what what's gonna like? What's the worst that could happen if I get a menchukuo? <laughs> I don't know. Like, you don't really have any ambitions to work for like the State Department, do you? No, but my thing, my approach to work is that I don't care about money as long as I have enough money for alcohol, cigarettes, books, and rent, and sometimes food. Um, if I can buy that, like, I'll do, like, any job. Sadly, um, being a foreigner here is not easy for visa situations, so I kind of have to do, like, formal work and, like, you know, professional stuff for about seven more years before I can get on a permanent residency visa and then go into full chaotic, like, nightlife only work i guess so i don't know i got a long ways to go but i still do have to like do regular people work. i'm really like scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of my personal finances and it's like oh god i'm I, horrible I, at money too i feel like fine in terms of like long-term career prospects but i'm really like finding a challenge getting my foot in the door so i just all work is fake. No job has actually any substance to it at all. And like, while I was like applying in this recent job cycle, it just occurred to me, I'm like, wow, literally anyone could do this job. Nothing matters. All of this is fiction. Like work is fake and no one should have to do it. And by no one, I mean, gay art podcasters who have something to say, like, I need like a state grant to just like give me money to like sit around and cause interpersonal drama and like get funny little lena dunham stories to tell and then i should get paid to just like sit read and talk about it on the internet mm-hmm. well this is kind of like looping back to the meme of like you know what's your job in the socialist commune and oh yeah, uh, yeah. and like the socialist commune collapses from like a, a huge glut of leftist podcasters and an insufficient uh demand of street sweepers and garbage men and um mm-hmm. i don't know i mean i feel like you obviously have something to say you're a visionary in every Thank sense you. of the word i'm working on it i'm getting there um oh no i think you, i think you have something to say um also anyone who's hot just shouldn't have to do anything except like be uh, uh, like exist thank you i i'm not coming on to you i swear i'm just i being know you're, you're just observing facts and i appreciate that and i'm very grateful um <laughs> So, oh, where was um, I going to go with that? Go, go ahead. First of all, the sangria is downright dangerous because it's so delicious. Right. Secondly, uh, I wanted to get back to. I, we keep like going in circles, but I want to talk about uh, Ezra Pound a little bit more. 
because sure. I'm really impressed by your knowledge of him. And also like, I feel like weirdly like the like 20th century modernists, I feel are under discussed by like super based and red pilled guys. Whereas like Mishima, Mishima is like for better or worse, like over discussed. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they've really like milked that cow for all he's worth, at least in terms of like conventional, like based in red pilled narratives. Yeah. And whereas like when I read not only Ezra Pound, but also like T.S. Eliot, I feel like it hits on all the tropes that like the online rightist guys are always harping on. And yet nobody's really like talking about them that much, except for like, honestly, the only people I know that are really into Ezra Pound are left cats that are obsessed with the aesthetics of secular fascism, but that nonetheless are um, leftist Catholics in their everyday life. Right. No, yeah, I think he is super under... And the thing is, is that none of them are getting attention from... I mean, yeah, like on the internet, we got, you know, this leftist uh, Catholic people or whatever who I stay very far away from for the most part. But um, I, I have, I, like, a lot of friends that are in that circle. They're uh, wonderful people, honestly. I, I'm sure they are. Yeah, I, I, I swear to God, I'm not being dismissive. I just, um, I just can't um sadly i like there are a few individuals that are very twee in their online personas i think in a way mm. that is not necessarily to my taste um but i love that like there is like especially in new york like there is a subset of these left cats that are obsessed with fascism <laughs> that's very cute yeah i mean um, I'm glad someone is, is, is ultimately what I'm trying to say, because like even academia also completely ignores these people now. And like, we had a little bit of T.S. Eliot in, um, I think we read some of Personae by Pound in um, some of my like lit seminar classes in college. But I find that absolutely no one is paying any of these people enough attention. And Henry Miller also, who I adore. Oh, I have um, to read Henry, Henry Miller. He's outside of my purview at the moment. I know... Um, yeah, you'll love him. My favorite novel of all time, or at least my favorite modern novel, is uh, called Beer in the Snooker Club by Wajwi Kali. Um, mm -hmm. That's like an Egyptian post-colonial novel from the 1960s. Um, incredibly funny uh the protagonist is like this self-loathing egyptian communist um but he, anyway the, the reason why i bring that up is that he, he cited henry miller as like his predominant influence and so i've always sought out novels like that and i've never found yeah. anything that like scratches that itch quite the same way so i know that i need to get to henry miller that's definitely on my radar but um yeah i'm unfamiliar with the book you're talking about but um like the the sort of successful like modernist like literature to me is one that has the great machinery of humanity and sort of like the terror and difficult relationship that, that inspires like at its its forefront and obviously Eliot does that so much in his work mm -hmm. um and again even like in his minor writings like what he did that the the, the cat poems didn't he yeah he did the um possum's book of practical cats which that's right. I have not read. I, I like started to read it and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is really like my lane, but. Oh, no, no, it's not mine either. But even like that still has like the like delightful, oh, wow, like language is fucking decaying. Like this is such a disaster. Like um, it has like that horror in it. And, um, you know, with uh, like 
Pound's like Futurist Manifesto and all of like the sort of great art that was happening like in that specific moment, I just find that there's such a wonderful like fear and awe in it. And um, I think you'll you'll come to love Miller when you eventually get around to him because uh, his best work is about that. Some of his stuff gets a little distracted. I think uh, most people read Tropic of Cancer because it was like the big controversial like sex novel when it was published, but mm-hmm. his uh, real true accomplishment is the rosy crucifixion trilogy which is sexus nexus and plexus and uh it's uh three books the first two are like 500 pages each and um that is like the the ultimate modernist piece of art to me so far that in contos like i feel like the wasteland is like under discussed for the fact that like it's mm-hmm. like it you know a generation ago that was high school like required reading like it was like pretty like basic on some level and yet like you read it and it has all the red pill talking points like there's literally a chapter in the wasteland where like a woman is raped and like the attitude towards it is like well that's her fault for being an emancipated woman like (laughs) it's like astonishingly red pills um (laughs) yeah no i mean the tragedy of of uh wasteland is that because of its like sort of conservative impulses, like now when it gets introduced in college lit seminars, like when we read it, it was not a reading of like its fantastic place in history. And it's like kind of this big climactic moment for a lot of modes of literature leading up to it. And it wasn't like an in-depth like process of like learning how those influences solidified into the poem. It was like, let's read how this is like conservative and then let's critique it together in class. I'm like, what a waste like even that's then that's why before, it's good that's literally yeah i mean it's a great exactly <laughs> like, even when i was like you know voting for clinton and like in, in 2016 and like was like still like a complete like libtard for the most part even i found it obnoxious that we were reading it that way no me too like i like um around the same time like i just I, i'm a little bit embarrassed about this but you know this is the beautiful toilet i'm willing to expose my shame like I was, uh, you know, I just thought it would be funny to be like a huge libtard as a bit, like just as like okay. a, a bit to be like a raging neoliberal that liked Hillary Clinton stuff. And like, um, and, you know, I've since outgrown that. I feel like it was disingenuous, but nonetheless, even then I was always on the same page uh, about like, just like culture and like free speech and trying to promote an open dialectic because of course, as I, said before on the pod epistemology and metaphysics must come both prior to ethics in order for you to have like the ethical frame like the framework from which to build your ethical system in the first place that's kind of a digression um i visited ezra pound's tombstone when i was at libertard in uh in italy this is a part of uh nick dolling lore is that my um my freshman year of all times was entirely abroad um oh i remember this yeah we talked about this on a twitter space a little bit (laughs) yeah and um it's a thing that nyu does it's very counterintuitive but it was very transformative i would say um and when i was abroad it was um that was also really like pardon the time that i discovered ezra pound that was um when I got deep into his poetry, that was when I was writing poetry the most, more or less. Um, I felt like my own work was progressing by leaps and bounds during that period. 
Mm. And so I took a day trip to Venice one day and I just went to go see Ezra Pound's tombstone. I feel like it was only proper that I should pay my respects. And really it would just be flattering to my pride that I should be the closest person in the world to the cadaver of Ezra Pound for just a moment. Just a moment, um, yeah. And he is buried in like some like big ass, like labyrinthine, difficult to find like cemetery on an island alone in Venice. Um, huh. And it's a huge cemetery. Stravinsky is also buried there. There are probably like a few other more minor figures buried there, but really like Stravinsky and Ezra Pound are like the big ones. And right. I made it into the plot where Ezra Pound was and spent like 30 minutes maybe walking around trying to find him. Um, and there were two old ladies there at the same time. And after about like 20 minutes, one of, uh, one of the old ladies approached me and you know she said in italian like are you here to find ezra pound or and i said yes i am and she said oh we're giving up right now but if you see him <laughs> drop this rose on his grave for us and so oh, at that wow. point i had to find him and i did yeah. i actually did like shortly thereafter it's weird how anonymous he is but um but yeah, I stood there. I reflected for about two minutes on being the closest person to Ezra Pound's cadaver. And I left that rose on behalf of those old ladies who were probably fascist, um, <laughs> which I appreciate now less so then, but I was still totally open to the experience. And so. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I would love to be so close to something like that. Um, I, now that I'm moving to Tokyo, I'm going to be closer. I haven't been... Um, it's very out of the way and I don't have a car. So mm -hmm. I haven't had the opportunity to go yet, but now that I'm moving to Tokyo, I want to go to the museum and I, I do know where his, um, the site of his ashes are. So I would like to go to that as well. Mm -hmm. That's day. like very high on like my, like I've never traveled outside of the United States, Europe and the Caribbean. Um, mm. But if I were to travel to Japan, I think the Mishima Museum would be very high on my list of priorities. Of course, King Kakuji. And yeah, yeah. Um, also, like, I would like to see, like, some of, like, the Catholic stuff in, like, southern Japan. In, um, oh, and Kyushu is, is great for that. Yeah. yeah. I, it's a, the southernmost island in the mainland. And I, I got to visit uh, two years ago. And it, it, that's a wonderful place to visit if you're interested in, like, literary tourism, too, because... Uh, a lot of uh, Natsume Soseki's stuff is there too. And I got to um, visit his old house and I went to an onsen that he had bathed in, which was really neat. And yeah, I, I love, I love just uh, being in like the physical space that people I admire have been in before because it, it really connects you with it. I mean, mm -hmm. I was so inspired after following uh, some of uh, Soseki's footsteps around that I just, um, I wrote a lot after that trip and um mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful to to feel like the touch of where all of that amazing art was coming from. And even just to know that for one moment, you're in the same place that they were is so cool. And I think my favorite Mishima-related travel I've done is an island in the prefecture I currently live in, Mie. Kamishima was the setting for Sound of Waves, which is a, his kind of um, romantic novel about uh, fishing people on the island. So I got to go walk on that island where he uh, fell in love with a hot uh lighthouse watcher and i got to go see all of that and it was amazing to to just be in that the literal footsteps it's so cool mm -hmm. i totally get that that's um 
something that I've always sought out and related to. When I was in London for spring break my freshman year, I also made a point of like going out to the exact addresses of cafes that Ezra Pound read at, uh, T.S. Eliot related stuff, you know, nerd stuff. Um, These days, (laughs) well, you know, I don't have enough of an audience to have any reservations. I live on St. Mark's Place. It's like, like kind of like historical and culturally relevant. You know, the, the block that I used to live on between 2nd and 3rd Avenue on St. Mark's Place was where W.H. Auden lived. And mm. um, yeah, and that's one of the things that keeps me anchored to New York City is that creative heritage. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much of it that's there and it has amounted in so much art. Um, to like feel like you're in the throng of that and you exist within it and really like notice yourself in it is uh, something I would like. I-, I like living in the countryside, but I'm excited to go to Tokyo because uh, I- I'm excited to feel like a-, a part of that huge rush of people. Um, I- I'm excited to get that sensation again. It's been a while. I definitely like uh, have like sentimental affection for the countryside too. I kind of see myself mm. settling down in the countryside, but me too. But I'm also like, I'm really an extroverted person. I like to be like the center of my social circle. I like to- <laughs> yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> revolve around me and to kind of gravitate towards me and to connect new people. And so um, insofar as that's my personality archetype and I'm not yet family equipped, mm. I gravitate towards New York. I'm tethered here. I love that. Mm-hmm. I ran out of beverages. I guess I had to drink this water I found on the table. Yeah, you have to uh, basically be drunk all the time for your job, right? Yeah. Um, there's, but you're not I working mean, right now, so you, you have a blank check. I, w- I would drink today, but I know I have to I have to go into the office to do some, put some paperwork in, you know, I got to go do more like resignation stuff. And um, they're already fucking furious with me about quitting, so... Um, to stumble in drunk at like 4 p.m. Probably not. It's something I would love to do, but probably should avoid. <laughs> well, if you've already parted ways, then I don't know if you're hoping for like a recommendation from them or like... A... They won't give it to me now. They're so fucking mad. Um, but I don't know. I, I would like to leave on a respectful note. I don't hate these people that I've worked with for, you know, three years. And um, I am screwing them over a little bit. So I'll try to be as respectful as like possible drinking just a little bit before my job makes me a better employee in the sense that like oh yeah, i'm yeah. more self-conscious and therefore like more hyper attuned to working hard and doing well even though it's like a much more like mentally taxing process to go through well, that this is why people in the 80s could like smoke and drink in their office is because it's it's a good for work like it helps yeah. <laughs> and don't italians go get drunk on their lunch break anyway yeah, kind of. I, What's that called? called siesta, siesta or something? Or something? Is, that is that Spain? I, don't know I didn't see much of that when I was in Italy. You know, I wasn't exactly in like a businessman type culture there. That was sure, not sure. the social milieu that I inhabited. Really, like <laughs> the only like true Italians that I hung out with, and this was like pretty rare because like the NYU Florence campus was pretty um, self-contained. Mm. But... I befriended a group of Italian guys at like an event that was just supposed to be for like Italian students to come into the campus to like speak 
English with us and we would speak Italian with them. And my Italian was far below their English. And so it kind of just ended up being like an English hanging out. But, um, but I remember I was, um, I saw these guys and one of them had a Melvin's t-shirt and I immediately recognized them as people that were into like edgy, experimental, heavy rock music. And I said, Oh, the Melvin's that's pretty cool. I like your shirt. And then this guy, um, what was his name? Simone, I believe he uh, Mm -hmm. pointed at my shirt and I was wearing a meme shirt at the time. It was a picture of, this is like very like 2017, but this was a picture of Barry uh-huh. B. Benson from B movie. And it said, oh, I, okay. I am God over the, <laughs> over the image. <laughs> and oh, B movie I bought memes. this wow. t-shirt um, that year. Um, and so he was impressed by that. And basically like, I was like, no, but I have an unironic interest in heavy rock music and stuff. And so they oh, invited cute. me to go to concerts with them after that. And it was a total vibe. They were like going to like this like communist, uh, like, uh, what do you call that? Like squatting space, like this warehouse that was abandoned. Oh, like, like a like commune a, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, a bunch of like sorry, an, uh, um, anarchist co-op. guys were like squatting in it. My friend Duccio yeah, was yeah. like telling me about how he, uh, he wore a burzum patch on his jacket to like one music festival and almost got the shit beat out of him because they thought he was a fascist and he's just like, no, no, I just like a music. Like, <laughs> <laughs> How cute. Mm-hmm. So that was honestly like the most um, accepted I had ever felt in Italian society was going to gigs with these guys in the spring semester. But I love that. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I, I've never... People in Japan always complain, like, foreigners. Like, oh, people don't see me as Japanese. I'm like, well, you're not. Like, I don't want to be seen as Japanese. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm not. I don't have any aspiration to be Japanese. I'm very content with, like, people recognizing me as a foreigner. Like, it's like, okay. I don't have any hang-ups about that. Like, I feel like also, I, like, leaning into, like, contradictions is, like, a big part of, like, the Zach Langley Chi Chi philosophy as well. Yeah, yeah sure. It's like... That, like you know even like homosexuality is kind of like a contradiction in terms and that you have and uh, okay i'm drawing from like your perfume nationalist episode here but like that there's like the conflict between like the desire for the straight man archetype of marlon brando versus like the hysterical screaming woman underneath and, yeah um, uh what's that woman uh vivian boom and like, yeah, but like leaning into that contradiction and living in that tension is what creates like great art. And you know, yeah, I am a Roman Catholic. I do my best to observe all the teachings and strictures of the Roman Catholic Church. And so here I am, just like this incredibly like virile young man, forced to like deny sexual opportunities by my weird like fringe religious beliefs and that is an inherent tension and i feel like to dissolve that tension would be a betrayal in some sense okay so you you are currently uh you're denying your to use a word i find very detestable your your inner kumar i am a volcel to use another detestable word yes i hate these words and i hate i hate the i was just talking about this the kumar Wojak, I hate looking at him. I don't like what it stands for. It makes me feel very attacked. 
<laughs> I mean, like, I like it because I feel like it's like something that is genuine and just like authentic, but it is also like pro-Catholic without being it like in like a dumb, cringy, like trad way. Yeah. It's like, but for me, I find sex to be very spiritual and beautiful, you know? So it's like, how dare you like reduce like my, my world expanding psychedelic experiences to, um, I don't, I, I don't get it for how people can mistranslate sex as like, oh, like being horny bad, like, okay. But like, if you do that and you shut yourself off to, and I'm not saying you are, like, I think it's also artistic, like in the sort of like Grecian Foucault way to manage your desires and to be conscious of them and then craft them into a part of your personality to, you know, manage them. I think that's great too. But um, in general, I feel like sex and, and dealing with sexuality is like, how humans touch the um, everlasting chain of birth and death that has like brought you here. Like it's this extremely long line of like lives that have like led to every person in the world having a desire to like reproduce and to be involved in that and to feel that and to experience and be like on the receiving or giving end of it, I I find to be um, a beautiful cosmic psychedelic experience. And well, I also am just tickled by um, any like waste of reproductive material that goes into my vessel, and that that's always like very funny to me. Like the world ends with me. Well, um, I think you put it really well when you said that uh, repression is like a form of sexuality. I think that uh, that really speaks my predicament that I've embraced repression as a sexuality, and it's like not at all equivalent to asexuality at all it's that no the way that i conceive of it it really is rooted in like a very like augustinian concept of the good which is that um god is like infinitely good because his being is that he is in other words um Mm. and to be good therefore consists in existing and to exist consists to some extent in having qualities and possessing positive qualities and what i find um in an aesthetic sense is that like sexual tension is just like overflowing with qualities it is um possessed of many adjectives that you can use to describe it whereas (laughs) sexual release is like absent of those qualities it kind of mm-hmm. diffuses them and like takes away from the intensity of experience and it resolves the tension. And so I'm also someone that like wants to lean into the tension in a, in a different way, but nonetheless, um, I think that state of suspended animation is something that I think is noble and worthy to aspire towards. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Foucault is misread all the time as being like, oh, queer theory, and like, nothing has any meaning, everything's a construct, but it's like, actually, he does like, um, fantastic surveys on um, how desire and repression, like, take social form, and repression is absolutely a form of sexuality, and it's perhaps even, you know, more perverse and explicitly sexual than any liberated culture could be, and that's also why the best gay cultures are the repressed ones because they have um, the catharsis of release, you know, like you get the um, day-to-day sort of non-existence and um, 
I don't know how to say this, like the rejection of your sexual identity, like it's always like shut away from you. So the moment that uh, you transverse through the repression and then achieve something is all the more rewarding for it. And that's why American gay culture is so boring now because there's no no work to be done. It just um, exists on the spiritual conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like, even if you just like watch a movie, it's like, the moment that the sex has actually been achieved within the film, like the moment that you are shown it, something has been lost. The tension like has been lost. And I think that in my personal practice of Christianity, that's what I aspire towards. Um, on a deeper level, I do accept like Catholic orthodoxy and stuff, but you know, on a creative level, I feel like, well, even like trad stuff, like, you know, trad posters or whatever, like, it's obvious that they are like barely disguised perverts to me. Right. right. They're like, oh, I would spank my children. I am obsessed with the notion of spanking my children. This is based and trad and red pilled and has nothing to do with my personal <laughs> fetish. And literally uh -huh. like most of like the trad stuff, if you really like scrutinize it, is basically a fetish that has been mapped onto a cultural notion of what the 1950s entailed. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and well, it's, it's all about managing your desires and um, because I mean, whether you like it or not, like you still have like your perversions and like you still have your desire and like your lust inside of you. So the theatrics and systems you establish to maneuver around them and suggest the idea that they're not there um, is inherently like a sex act. And so, you know, working through things you want to pretend aren't there or like things you don't want to acknowledge or things you're trying to um, conceal about yourself. Like all of those productions you're doing to make that character are uh, just elaborate acts of BDSM basically. Also, will you kill me? My only copy of the Bible is King James. That's all right. I, uh, I'm ecumenical myself. I think uh, okay. a lot of like the giga catholic stuff is kind of cringe i mean i do believe it is uh -huh. like the one holy catholic apostolic church whatever but like the whole thing of being like oh protestantism that's gay you know it's like <laughs> well i mean have you read calvin like have you read luther and like the protestant reformers like can you engage with them on their own terms and then debunk them as such like i can like i don't <laughs> think a lot of these trad posters are i think that calvin is like a heretic, a very disruptive figure, and also like a very brilliant theologian that has added a lot to uh, the Christian heritage. I view him in much the same lens as I view Origen and a lot of the other early heretics that are nonetheless like part of like the Christian apostolic tradition. Right. I guess for me, I just picked the King James novel because I, I read a few passages of other versions and I found the King James to be most beautiful and I can go and like read oh no what's the word a proc the books yeah the ones that the Protestants got rid of right right like uh, yeah, I want to go and I can read those like separately you know like I want I, I want to read Judith because I uh, I I love a lot of the like uh, Caravaggio and um, the depictions of Judith slaying Holofernes and um, I'm very into like that stuff, so I, I will go visit it eventually. But Zach, do for you now, see this little uh, box in the oh, my... I see, I see, boy with basket of fruit. 
Yeah, that that painting I've always uh, identified with a little bit. I always uh, yeah. In I, my other room, I have my um, I have my Magdalene and Ecstasy. Uh, so <laughs> I I love Caravaggio. I just saw like um, a whole gallery of him a year ago when they brought his paintings to Japan for the first time, and I got to I got to see uh, stuff from him and Artemisia, who I is one of my all time favorite painters. So I was thrilled. Really, a, a moving experience. Yeah. As far as the um, the Bible translations thing, uh, the closest Catholic equivalent to the uh, King James Bible is the Douay Rheims. It's totally unreadable. It's not a good nice. translation. <laughs> it's like it has like some of the appeal of the King James Bible, but imagine if they took the King James Bible and then just like wrote in unreadable Latinization or like Anglicizations of Latin words. Um, oh, cool. I mean, it, it's definitely like worth looking into just for the oddity of it, but it is not a readable English translation by any No, that one kind of sounds totally like, like fun to like, read the read aloud. Translation. Um, yeah. I actually like the like super like cringy boomer uh, New American Bible translation of I think that's the one the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, the that, New yeah, American that, that Bible. That is a that was the one I was debating between that and the King James. A lot of people hate it. It's pretty straightforward, I think, but I actually find it very readable, at least in like the mm, parts okay, of the okay. Bible that are normally readable. Um, nice. nice. Yes, that, I can't that, say I've been especially moved by the Bible, unfortunately. I am, let's see. I, I've been reading it like in between other books. I'm on numbers right now. Uh, and I, a few stuff, a few things have touched me, but sadly I just haven't really had like the, my heart hasn't moved reading it yet. I think the we'll Bible get there eventually. But... The thing is like, like <laughs> people always talk about the Bible like it's like one solid book, but it's literally like, if you were to look at, you know, Penguin Random House's list of 100 books that changed the 20, 20th century, that's the league that the Bible is in. It's like a list of books. And mm -hmm. the criteria for this list is that they're divinely inspired. But like the Bible itself is like not a coherent literary work. Any given book. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I don't think that for the laity, like the entire bible is like strictly essential like you don't need to know all of the details of like the jewish old testament uh dietary laws i think uh my strongest recommendation is for the book of luke acts well those are two separate books as they've been categorized but they're written by a single author and they're very clearly constructed as like a parallel literary work in that yeah. um Every chapter of Luke details the life of Christ in the same sense that every chapter of Acts details the life of the early church. Um, right. Luke is a very sentimental author. He is like a very like emotional um, and cozy in a lot of ways. And I find that out of all the gospel writers, I think he's the one that speaks to me the most, even though John yeah, is like yeah. a brilliant mystic. I'm excited to get there. I think um, I have a lot more patience for like the listing and the order of practices and the minutia that um, can take up a lot of text with the book, um, you know, to misnomer it. But I mean, I read Genji Monogatari like in three weeks because I was like so obsessed with it. And 
that book is really, really like minute and boring and has like endless like lists of like dumb things going on. And like even like uh Sad, you know, like when I read like Juliet on for like pleasure reading, like that book is a lot of just listing of practices and um I'm absolutely okay with it. I'm just kind of waiting for some moment in my experience with the Bible for um, something to move inside of me. And I haven't got there yet, but I'm like literally only like what, 20% of the way there. So there's lots of time for it to, you know, affect me. Yes. I wouldn't begrudge you in the slightest if you were to skip to the gospels. In fact, I, I mean, I've, I've thought about, about it, it, but I, I, I have a completionist sensibility and I also just like the, I like, I like having, having to, to read, read the, the whole frustrating. I am also you know. a completionist. Like I really like for me to, because I don't want to lie about anything that I've read. And so when I say I've read a book, it means that I've either read the book, every word on the page has registered in my eyes and in my mind, mm. or every word of a translation of the book has registered in my eyes and in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it's important to me to be very technical about it to the point that I even read the front matter of books so as not to ever lie and say that I've read a book that I have not. <laughs> Good. I mean, that's great. Um, for me, it's like, if you, you know, put your, if you can like say, uh, I don't know if I have a rule about this, honestly, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Love it, queen. <laughs> it's a little bit pedantic. I'm really like applying like male autism to the concept of having finished a book. No, no, I think uh, that's, it, it's good. Uh, it's good praxis to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Zach, I feel like I'm getting less and less articulate as things progress. Uh, no, I love it. I love, uh, you know, the hyper detailed Mishima yes, off to uh, the, the, the vague generalities of the Bible. I think it's a beautiful <laughs> conversation. Yes, I... Uh... Unfortunately, I'm probably more well-versed in Mishima than I am in Bible. I'm not a very good Catholic. Certainly me too. And I mean, it's not looking like that's going to change anytime soon. So, <laughs> But nonetheless, um, I guess things are winding down. Uh, and so damn good. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, so- no, I had a, I, this was a really exciting for me too. I mean, um, in going on anyone who invites me. I have seen some shows where it, it's not working, you know, and this oh. is working. You, you have a, a great mission and I am completely here for it. I am excited to see what you do with your show. And I, I can't wait to, I'm very honored to have been a part of it in its early stages. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so this has been the beautiful toilet episode four. I'm very privileged to have the iconic Zach Langley Chi and I have nothing more to say. I feel like the episode has spoken for itself. So Thanks everyone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>